Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of what we're calling Wolfson Week, where we take a closer look at almost all of the books that were shortlisted for the prize this year. So, Charlie, who do we have with us today? Well, we are delighted to welcome this year's winner of the Wolfson Prize. Yes, hashtag winning. Claire Jackson is senior tutor at Trinity Hall, Cambridge. She's presented a number of excellent documentaries, if I may say, on the Stuarts and written on Charles II. Her prize winning book is called Devil Land, and it's the story of England between 1588 and 1688. Quiet 100 years. (laughs) First off, Claire, we love this concept. We love smashing boxes and... People are so wedded to the idea that the Tudors the Tudors finished in 1603, and then the Stuarts came in, as though this was some sort of line. It's nonsense when you think about it, right? Because the people that lived it don't draw that line here, do they? No, they don't. Um, and I don't think I probably initially intended it to be quite so sort of periodization smashing as it seems to have been um, received. Uh, Probably that's partly because I started life really as a historian of Scotland. And I think there is a real problem in English history where people assume that James I is a new king and inexperienced in 1603. Um, You know, this is somebody who was crowned king of Scotland um, aged 13 months in 1567, um, who then had a sort of quite dramatic series of regencies but had ruled Scotland on his own terms as an adult king for two decades before he even thought about you know or actually be or not thought about he thought about it for a long time but before he actually became king of England so I've always had this difficulty with seeing 1603 as entirely new I think it probably felt entirely new if you were living in London um but uh what I was interested in was this idea of how continental Europe saw England and contemporaries themselves fit draw their own narratives and their own calendars and certainly in 1688 in the Williamite revolution um, and the Dutch invasion that accompanied that in you know people saw huge 
eschatological providential significance in the fact that that happened in 1688, 100 years after the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. Um, so those were my initial sort of boundary. You know, I was always sort of attracted by working within that sort of long 17th century of that, that 100 years. Um, but the more that I thought about it as well, I couldn't really dodge the um, the ghost of Mary Queen of Scots, who sort of <laughs> hovers in a in a I told you so kind of way over quite a lot of the seventeenth century. Um, so really, the book begins just before the um, Spanish Armada with Elizabeth I ordering the execution of Mary Queen of Scots. That creates kind of shockwaves throughout Europe. Um, the, the term devil land isn't coined until um, what well, is coined in 1652 by an anonymous Dutch pamphleteer. But the, but the sort of thought had certainly been there before that. Yeah, I think it, I loved it when Dan Jones did the hollow crown and bridged the gap between the wars of the roses and the Tudors as well. And like you say, like potentially you're not even thinking about smashing boundaries with, with the thing. I mean, this, as you're saying, this period picked itself, didn't it really? It did for me. Um, partly it was also, and I've tried to include sort of illustrations in the book as well. I mean, partly it's just how contemporaries drew maps. I mean, those map, I have a lot of sort of maps showing um, things like landing sites around uh, the British Isles. And, you know, th- as I say, also contemporaries have this kind of narrative. And, you know, when William arrives in 1688, it's, it's not only 100 years since um, 1588, but it's also happens to be the 5th of November. Um, so by that stage, that's assumed as well, sort of huge providential significance as being the anniversary of the gunpowder plot. So just sort of thinking about how contemporaries structured their periodization and the anniversaries that they chose to con- you know, commemorate, I think probably explained the choice of um, dates. What was it about the Spanish Armada that, that made it such a watershed moment to start the book with? Uh, I think, and this, I think I also wanted to sort of draw this out. I think the recognition, even among contemporaries, that the Spanish Armada would be more important in terms of how it was constructed and remembered rather than probably what actually happened. Um, clearly the Spanish hadn't just had this idea. They'd been thinking about what they called the enterprise of England for, for many years. Uh, this was a great period of Spanish hegemony you know, and Philip II's empire really, really was worldwide. Um, and so great impetus was given to um, the justification for that empire, for that that attempt to invade England by sailing up the English Channel and linking up with a um, an army in modern day Belgium, what was then the Spanish Netherlands, um, by the execution of Mary Queen of Scots. That sort of, I mean, she sort of had by that stage, or even a year later, this sort of posthumous status as a master. She wasn't just a, a, a reigning anointed Queen of Scotland. She had been a reigning Queen Consort of France. And um, she'd also had sort of close links to um, the Spanish court as well. And, you know, Catholic Europe is so shocked by this event and by, you know, this heretic woman, Elizabeth I, daring to order the execution of another queen. Um, so although there's a lot of strategic reasons um, and rail politique behind Spain's uh, sort of attempt to invade Southern England. It has this kind of really compelling sort of justification by the execution of Mary Queen of Scots. One of the sort of light motifs that runs through Devil Land as well is that this doesn't go away. I mean, as it happens, poor um, communications between the, the Navy and the Spanish army explain why they don't link up with uh, the Duke of Palmer's forces in the Spanish Netherlands, um, there are sort of poor weather and storms. It's pretty late in the season, um, sort of late um, late summer, to be attempting it. Um, and then also the, the, the English Navy does successfully repulse it. 
But there is a sort of series of other smaller armadas that sort of sail during the 1590s as well and uh, attack Cornish towns and, and lead to some fatalities and burning of um, Protestant churches. Um, so this isn't something that goes away. I mean, all the way through this period, anyone living on the English South Coast would always have thought that the threat came from from overseas, primarily usually from Spain, but later later perhaps from France. Um and the Spanish themselves, are, it becomes a kind of recurrent theme. You know, they always insist if you could only just get a foothold in the Isle of Wight, that would be your way into <laughs> southern England. And they talk very evocatively as well about Cape Margate. If you could just, you know, <laughs> get some forces around Margate, link up and sail down the Thames, you know. So these, and you look at the maps. I mean, there's a lot of maps at the beginning of Devilland to sort of show just how close these landing points are. And, uh, you know, certainly in the political imaginary, Catholic Europe feels very close. I think it's hilarious, isn't it? Cape Margate, it makes it sound very glamorous. <laughs> very, very exotic. <laughs> so everyone knows the event of the Spanish Armada, everyone of 1588 and that, but I think it's the wider context of it as well, isn't it? So the country's future is very much at flux at this point, isn't it? Um, Elizabeth I ageing, unmarried. How do people feel about this at the time? Are they worried about an uncertain future? Very much so, um, and it's remarkable really remarkable in a way the way that uh elizabeth's reputation remains so positive given that you could argue that by failing to sort of make responsible provision for the succession actually going further than that making it a capital crime even to discuss it that actually this is you know the most irresponsible thing that a monarch could do in terms of not making you know good provision for what follows afterwards um and although we now know that elizabeth dies in march 1603 and that there's a sort of surprisingly peaceful succession to the Stuarts. I mean, nobody knows that in 1588, 1589, 1590. And when Elizabeth enters her sixth decade at the beginning of that, uh, the 1590s, you know, that's already older than any of her Tudor predecessors. So I think there is an expectation or a fear that, you know, Elizabeth could just die at any point. And there are at least a dozen, sort of 10 to a dozen potential claimants to um, her throne with different kinds of um, hereditary or other kind of claim. Um, Any discussion of this is banned. Um, And most people are fairly certain that England will just then sort of descend into some kind of civil war that foreign powers like France and Spain will just be unable to resist getting involved in. Yeah, it's quite naughty, isn't it, on her part? It's pretty selfish. I mean, it's phenomenal. Negligent, really. Can you imagine? Yeah. And part of me thinks, because <laughs> we know he's a massive dick. Uh, but Henry VIII would have been mortified, wouldn't he? He had done anything. No one had worked harder to try and secure the succession. I mean, you know, six wives. Um, less you know, he was <laughs> driven by the need to secure the succession. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, the idea that you could sort of just announce that you've married your country and... Um, uh, you know, that's it, um, is, 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 is really quite jaw-dropping. And it's not like she didn't have, let's say, 30 years plus to think about it seriously mm-hmm. when it became obvious that this wasn't going to be an heir of her own body. No, no, not but at all. And the longer that she has to think about it, in a way, the longer that others have to think about it too. So, I mean, in the end, Mary, Queen of Scots, just becomes this, I mean, yeah, England was probably not the right country for her to have fled to, but she just becomes this kind of magnet for all Catholic attempts to eject Elizabeth. Uh, but also James, although James steers a really canny course between um, 
you know, sort of not not alienating Elizabeth um, too much uh, through the 1580s and 1590s, but also at the same time, always upholding his right to succeed her. Um, you know, he also has a lot of time to prepare and he does that, you know, in various ways. I mean, we tend to think most instantly of, you know, the secret correspondence he maintains from after Essex's revolt with a few key English courtiers. But the whole way through the 1590s, he's played a clever game really of, having a lot of ambassadorial and diplomatic relations with the rest of Europe, particularly Catholic Europe, um, basically offering reassurance that, you know, this is someone who's not known to be a religious persecutor, who has quite a lot of Catholic nobles in his Scottish administration. Rumours begin to start circulating that his Danish uh, Lutheran wife, Anna of Denmark, has sort of covertly converted to Catholicism. And he is, after all, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. So, you know, there's enough in his associations and his his record as King of Scotland that could be reassuring to Catholic Europe that it might, that the future might look a little better for English Catholics than have been the case under um, Elizabeth, who had, after all, been excommunicated by the Pope in 1570. So when this transition happens and and the Stuarts come to the throne through through James, is that a smooth transition? Because it, it always sort of reads as being very very smooth. Was there were the people um, positive about this, or were they were they just remarkably about- smooth? I think there had been a real sort of fear, you know, apprehension really about um, what might happen when the unthinkable happened that, you know, Elizabeth Elizabeth died. By this stage, James's um, negotiations with um, Cecil and other key players are so secure, very secret, only known to, a, you know, people you can count on two hands. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, he's, he is trusted. They spend a lot of time writing about policy and writing about handover. And, you know, he's always been warned, don't do anything rash. Don't try and preempt this. Um, it will be far better for you to await the normal course of events um, than be seen to eject um, a sitting ruler. Um, and James takes this advice. Um, yeah, I think um, there's quite a lot of comments um, just in London about, you know, one day the Queen is is living and then dies and the next day apparently it's going to be the new king james has been read out um but i mean he's got quite a lot going for him i mean he seemed there's you know that the way it's choreographed in terms of proclamations is very quick and the you know the, there's no sort of uncertainty from the english establishment he, you know he's a king uh he's protestant he's got uh, a family which is a novel experience for the english court after half a century you know he's got two sons princess henry and prince charles at this stage and also a daughter princess elizabeth and um, there are more um children that follow but they don't survive infancy but you know there's a lot compared to some sort of spanish backed um you know the archduchess isabella or some sort of very minor branch of some of henry the eighth's many sort of descendants this appears uncontroversial um and yeah i think i think it probably is remarkable remarkably smooth england was okay about this it wasn't sort of a oh now we are now we're scottish because we have a scottish king i think in retrospect that was a little bit how it was how it was later um you know when things go wrong in the 1640s and one of the themes (laughs) of devil land is that um this is a foreign dynasty. And, you know, one of the first sort of shocks that the English get is when James arrives and goes, well, first thing I'm going to do is, you know, sue for peace with Spain. You know, I've got no, I've got no argument with Spain. Um, and the Treaty of London is is held on English territory. And, you know, these long running wars, I mean, you know, in a way, Protestant England had defined itself by the fact that it was at war with Spain. Um, 
And that has all sorts of knock on effects. I mean, it's a sort of big blow for English Catholics who'd always look to Spain to sort of potentially sort of help them with some kind of counter-reformation initiative. Um, it creates opportunities in North America where, you know, sort of the fact that England and Spain have been at war with one another sort of legitimized sort of various things. Well, it begins to create different sort of conditions there. Um, so I think, you know, quite soon the English realized that actually they haven't just got a free monarch from sort of anywhere who's going to, um, you know, understand England and have English interests always at, at the forefront of his mind. Uh, he also comes with this very un-English idea that he wants to create a new country and get rid of names like England and Scotland and create this phenomenal Great Britain. Uh, and that doesn't particularly go down with sort of ready enthusiasm among English MPs. But initially, the very fact that he is Protestant, um, that, you know, he is, he, he also has the strongest hereditary claim. He may have been um, deliberately excluded in Henry VIII's will, but I mean, you know, he, he is clearly, um, you know, clearly has a legitimate hereditary claim. Uh, you know, all of that seems good grounds for optimism at the very outset. It does indeed. Um, I'm supremely ignorant of the 17th century, really, uh, of First World War historian, Claire. Um, so I have in my head 1605 gunpowder plot, and then I have a gaping hole until Charlie starts complaining about Charles I. Uh, and I was, I'm not even going to say, does anything happen there? What am I missing? Uh, and Yeah, and I mean, I think one of the... <laughs> This is a long-winded way of answering it, but I think one of the difficulties with the 17th century is sometimes that um, either it's a bit like there's just too many events, it's too complex, you know, it's yeah. just it's so difficult the to phrase get your head around. Trump Parliament as well. I hear yes. that phrase and I am already asleep. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think that's true. I mean, a lot happens. I get that's absolutely true, and it's a very complex century. But I don't believe that because it is a complex. Uh, you know, action-packed century that therefore one says, oh, it's just too difficult to study. I think I think that's really quite dangerous. Um, but I think the other problem in the way in which we've approached it is in a way that the civil wars very naturally dominate, but therefore people, you know, as, as it's often been said, you know, each generation fights the civil wars in its own terms. So there was always a tendency to sort of go, well, how far do you need to look back? I mean, was it really just a very short-term collapse of authority or really were these long-term sort of, dysfunction in the English state you know Lawrence spoke 50 years ago as the Wolfson History Prize celebrated its 50th anniversary this year but it's also 50 years since Lawrence Stone published his Causes of the English Revolution and you know that he he dated that right back to 1529 you know for him this was all to do with the dissolution of the monasteries and these long-term sort of economic substructure changes and you know that has I think meant that the actual sort of integrity of events between say the gunpowder plot and um the Battle of Edge Hill sort of sometimes gets telescoped according to people's theories of the Civil War. Um, but if you were living it through that period, I think I think there's a there's a huge amount of interesting things that happen. Um, the precarity of dynastic history um, is shown up very clearly in 1612 when Prince Henry dies. And really, he had been the heir and the son, you know, the eldest son that James had really sort of um, you know, prepared and um, envisaged as his successor. He'd written a manual of kingship for him. That kind of throws uh, the Stuart dynasty into some sort of disarray. One of the things I've tried to do in Devilland actually is restore the importance of the Palatine branch that then follows um, the marriage of James's daughter in 1613 to the elector Palatine, Frederick V. They very briefly become king and queen of Bohemia before they're objected, but, uh, ejected. But Elizabeth and Frederick have 13 children and it is the youngest of those 
children, Sophia, um, whose son, George, uh, George Ludwig, eventually becomes George I um, when the Stuart own sort of mainline dies out. But the whole way through this period, um, a lot of European, a lot of English attention is focused on continental Europe because that's where Princess Elizabeth is. And a lot of people think Princess Elizabeth is the more likely to succeed because Prince Charles was a very sickly infant um, you know, suffered from a lot of childhood illnesses um, and, you know, were uh, Frederick and Elizabeth and their huge brood, uh, also a staunchly Protestant brood, were they to sort of succeed to James's throne? Then that would be a, a very different kind of multiple monarchy of England, Scotland and Ireland, but one that then stretched sort of through Central Europe, through um you know, Heidelberg and, and potentially Bohemia and things. So I think, you know, a lot of, there is a lot in the outbreak of the um, 30 years war then happens on the continent. Um, there's also the exodus of the Mayflower and the first um, sort of settle, um, settlement in New England um, as tensions emerge within the English church over, you know, in a sense, it's half reformed state, you know, Puritans finally begin to lose um, hope that James's accession marks a new direction uh, that they would like to see the English church take. So it is, it is a very complicated period. And I, so I suppose the real difference is as well is that all these new vistas are opening up, um, as well as being a really exciting period in terms of you know, sort of Shakespeare plays and um, the first newspapers um, start appearing in, in London in the 1620s. And, um, and it, it's, a, it's a phenomenally and, and also under the Stuarts too, huge amounts of foreign contact that just wasn't the case in Tudor England. You know, large numbers of foreign ambassadors, foreign painters, you know, things like the amazing ceiling. She looks kind of quite foreign and Baroque in the in the in the, in the banqueting hall that, that Charles commissions in honour of his father, James VI and I. I mean, he commissions the famous Flemish artist, Peter Paul Rubens, to paint that when Rubens is there as a diplomat. So. Whereas Elizabeth had really sort of, you know, lived in splendid isolation, uh, hadn't maintained foreign embassies in any Catholic country except France. You know, James is someone who's always surrounded himself with um, representatives from foreign states um, and is also partly interested in a way that Elizabeth didn't need to be in sort of dynastic marriage of his offspring as well. He spends a lot of the 1600s and 1610s trying to negotiate matches for, you know, first of all, Henry, who then dies, but also Elizabeth and, and um, Charles. It's it's a film that I desperately want to see is the uh, the attempt of Charles and the Duke of Buckingham going to woo the Spanish Infanta. Absolutely, um, yeah, and it's it's very evocative. I mean, part of as I as I say in the acknowledgements, you know, Dev, Devilland's inspiration as a book came from the films I made about the Stuarts, where we spent a lot of time both around various sort of places within the British Isles, but also. You know, we did spend a week in Madrid, um, you know, just thinking quite hard about, you know, the, the lifelong, lifelong legacy of that six months that Charles spent there in um, 1623. And, you know, certainly artistically and culturally, um, I think it did have a very profound effect, as well as being kind of a remarkably audacious and foolish uh, you know, idea in itself. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. 
wonderful. I, I always think you're know, looking at the world as we see it now, looking at politics globally, not just here in the States as well and, and all around the world. You can see parallels and, and a better way of understanding it by looking at this period of history. I was very struck once when I was when I was making those um, programs. Um, I did an interview with um, Fergal Keane, um, and he was talking about how he always calls the 1640s for him the kind of go-to period in Irish history to try and understand the impact of the Ulster Rebellion in 1641 and the long, sort of very bloody, very, you know, sort of really, really traumatic um, history of Ireland during the 1640s and 1650s, pre and post Cromwell. Um, You know, that's his go-to period of Irish history when he then covered things like civil wars in Rwanda or um, former Yugoslavia around the world. And yeah, I think, I mean, it's not a, it's not a theme I labour explicitly in Devil Land, but, you know, it is about continental Europe's perceptions of England during a really unstable period. And as I say in the acknowledgements, you know, it, was, it happened to be commissioned the week after the Brexit referendum. Yeah. And I finished it the week after we left, uh, the UK left um, the EU after the um, transition period. And, you know, I, I don't mention it in the text, but inevitably it was written very much in that sort of shadow of Brexit speculation and debate. And this this period really sees the birth of what would become the British Empire in hindsight. Can you tell us a bit about how such a tumultuous little island like us is is out there laying the foundations for this yeah and it's interesting what we mean by a little island like us because probably the english did think of themselves as an island but you know a lot of this period is quite unstable because this island is still at least two separate kingdoms um england and scotland both have quite different um approaches to overseas um territories and then there's our ireland as well and actually one of the major um, forces moving towards British Union in 1707 was, you know, the inability of Scotland to create its own empire um, while it had the same monarch as, as England um, by that stage, William III. Um, but also, you know, it, it couldn't trade; it, it had no sort of free trade access to any of England's markets. So, and then once it found itself in a sort of perennial war with all of its continental markets. You know, it it really sort of found itself in the worst of all situations. And that was a very big economic motive to create Great Britain um, in 1707. But going back a sort of almost 100 years at the beginning of this period, England is quite late to the idea of sort of overseas settlement. I mean, there isn't there is an awareness that this is something that, you know, the Spanish have been doing and the French have been doing. Um, And, you know, the, the English monarchy is is not as well resourced as as those big superpowers so much of it is done through sort of joint stock companies and much of it is really a sort of trial and error sort of process um and you know it it, it is quite a precarious unstable sort of history through the 17th century under Cromwell in the 1650s I mean that becomes the, the the western design as it's known and Cromwell's seizure of Jamaica is the first instance of a sort of um, old European power, if you like, seizing a, a, a colony that's already permanently or thinks it's permanently settled by another power, the Spanish. At the time, it's a consolation prize because Cromwell had actually tried to take Hispaniola, which is kind of um, Haiti in the Dominican Republic, and, and failed and been repulsed. And sort of Jamaica was the, was at that time the sort of consolation prize. Um, but that marked a very new sort of departure in terms of sort of state-sponsored theft or seizure, if you like. Um, and then, you know, different models um, appeared. Charles II uh, 
uh, acquired a very large uh, dowry from the Portuguese when he married Catherine of Braganza, and that included the then port of Bombay, um, and you know, the East India Company began to sort of develop that. Uh, it also included the North African port of Tangier, and that settlement didn't, um, in the end, flourish in the way that um, uh, the government and the court and investors had hoped. So it's quite a, you know, it's, it's quite it's quite a precarious stop start if you want to see it in any sort of trajectory but i think more of a reason to almost look at each sort of settlement on its own terms and work out the sort of various dynastic confessional mercantile sort of rationale when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think as well... Um... We we are going to have to talk about the middle of the century, but I, I think we're not going to try and cover it because it's insane. How do you how do you even approach condensing down such a large and complex turn of events as the War of the Three Kingdoms for a volume like Devilland, where it's not the centerpiece, is it? No, it's not. Um, I, I don't know is the honest answer. <laughs> um, I think. Because I did write it chronologically, so you know, I didn't. I, I did. I did approach the 1640s, having written the 1630s, in a kind of logical sense. But I think I had quite clear themes in my mind, and I do say very openly at the beginning of the book. You know, this is a partisan polemical argument. You know, this is not. I, even even if you believe there is such a thing as a, you know, wholly objective and comprehensive history of the 17th century to be written, this isn't it. This is making a polemical argument about England's instability, vulnerability and insecurity and how it is perceived and how foreign. I mean, I think at one point I call England sort of Europe's adventure playground. You know, it's both a sort of scene of, of sort of horror mystification, but it's also a very open um, sort of government and society. So it's actually quite easy for foreign powers suddenly to, you know, not only kind of get involved, but actually interfere and, and meddle um, and even invade if, if they wish. Um, so I think, you know, seeing things from that perspective, probably, I don't know, probably, you know, at least determined, I wasn't then going to start looking at, you know, sort of the ins and outs of, uh, sort of, you know, domestic parliamentarian and royalist um, campaigns. What I was interested in was the extent to which those royalist and parliamentarian forces found foreign allies or um, hindrance. You know, it was very much seen through those those sorts of eyes. Um, you know, when I was sort of following the, the, I was about to say the fortunes, but there weren't many of Charles I, the fate of Charles I, you know, a lot of that was seen through the eyes of the French ambassador um, or series, series of French ambassadors uh, who were sent to England, you know, who actually go to Newcastle and spend time with Charles, trying to kind of reason him to adopt what they see as a, you know, it's a more reasonable position given how, uh, 
hopeless his his situation appears to them um so i think you know again probably by continuing the perspective that informed the earlier chapters i also knew where i was going as well because um i wanted to look at the 1650s again not necessarily from the perspective you know not placing cromwell center stage but looking at both the stuart court in exile and how they sort of interacted it was a very peripatetic and kind of impoverished exile how they interacted with different courts and how different court foreign courts found themselves when they had this sort of wandering discredited dynasty on its hands but also then how cromwell's uh, or the, the the English Commonwealth, or subsequently the Protectorate, you know the sort of ways in which it maintained foreign relations with um, you know Spain and France and the Netherlands and other places. So yeah, I think that's probably how. <laughs> I think so. I'm I'm going to ask the next one as well, just because it's entirely based on my obsession with Peter the Great. Uh, it's always interested me reading Robert K. Massey's just like magisterial book uh, on Peter the Great, how visceral his father's reaction, uh, Tsar Alexis, was mm. to the execution of Charles mm. I. He thinks we're a nation of utter savages. Mm. Uh, and coming from the Russians at the time, that's quite <laughs> rich, but not necessarily untrue. I mean, how could you possibly decapitate your head of state, uh, your god appointed monarch uh, is this a wider of, opinion of england in the period absolutely um not only decapitate them but do it publicly i mean i think that's <laughs> and with the hand of the common executioner i mean that so that touches a really raw nerve for crowned heads um among, <laughs> across europe so i think two things i think first Yes. I mean, the, the name of the book is Devilland, Deufelland. That just was from somebody equally as outraged, but a bit closer to home in, in the Dutch Netherlands. Um, because what that camp, what that pamphleteer was doing was playing on this medieval pun that the Angli uh, were always cherubic kind of angeli angels, that the English were really angels. And, you know, as this, as this outrage pamphleteer says, you know, they're not, they are diabolical devils, the English. They have, as you say, put this, div- put this divinely ordained, uh, anointed king on trial, publicly decapitated him by the acts of the common executioner. They've got this out of out of control unrepentant republican government in power and it seems totally you know sort of un, unable to listen to, to reason and now even worse they're about to declare war on their protestant you know sort of confessional brothers the dutch they're, they're doing it for trade reasons but you know t- this is totally out of control i suppose the second point i would make to that though and that there were exactly the same kind of exp- expostulations coming from moscow or from muscovy um and across europe i suppose this, the second point though is that at least to the French, this is only to be expected. And I think that's why the book has to start with the execution of Mary yeah, We Scott. told you, we told you about them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And they keep going, you know, what do you expect? This is what the English did to his grandmother. At yeah. least then they had the decency to do it behind closed doors. But, you know, this is what they do. And it begins to make a lot of sense, too, of the urgency of a lot of James the Sixth and First's warnings. You know, a lot of James's arguments with the Catholic Church had been about the Catholic Church's insistence that heretic rulers could be deposed. Um, and you know, things like the murder of Henri Quatre, uh, Henri IV in France by a Catholic who was so disgusted at um, Henri's um, sort of tolerance of Protestantism. Henri himself had been, been a Protestant before he converted as well. Um, you know, absolutely. Brought, and that was in 1610, that really brought home to James that no crowned head of Europe should feel safe while the Catholic Church was preaching, as he could see it, these kind of murderous themes of tyrannicide. You know, James in the end died 
you know, relatively peacefully in his bed. Um, but, you know, to, 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 the, to continental Europe is exactly as you say, you know, the, the Stuarts and England is the sort of country where they do just m- murder their monarchs. I thought it was like, it, to me, it always feels like, you know, um, the way people think about our football fans, you know, in the 80s, where they're just like, oh, yeah, they're all hooligans, they're all lunatics and absolutely insane uh, and can't be trusted. And like, it's this kind of a worldwide perception of the rest of the continent just looks at us and shakes its head. Uh, it feels like that. It does. It's, there's a lot of head shaking and, you know, sort of clicking in an exa- foreign exasperation. And I think the other thing that also really befuddles, I don't know, just mystifies, appalls foreign visitors is, you know, when they come to London, particularly where they, where they, where they usually head first or where they spend a lot of time is the sort of porousness of everything. You know, there doesn't, you know, there's, everybody just seems to want to talk politics all the time. Everything seems very insecure. You know, if you get rowed across the Thames by a common waterman, you know, all they want to do is talk politics to you. Um, you know, if you are coming from somewhere where your Royal court is, is, you know, sort of not only very grand physically, but, you know, sort of there are so many layers of courtier that you would never really see the royal presence. This very sort of open, porous, unstable kingdom, you know, is, is and that's in the 18th century, um, Montesquieu famously called, you know, England a republic disguised as a monarchy. So there is this sort of sense that, you know, the English are, are really not like the rest of Europe. There is, a, there is a sort of theme of English exceptionalism running through it, or at least in the eyes of the beholder can't imagine what that's like um (laughs) so i mean in terms of reactions of abject horror there's also we've also got a partner to the north whose king we've just executed how did scotland react to the regicide like most of continental europe with you know sheer horror i mean charles the first had been born in scotland um you know he, he was born in dunfermline in 1600 and the scots had you know, the Scots had their own arguments with Charles. I mean, they were the ones who had, in a sense, started the civil wars by um, opposing a lot of his religious policies and taking up arms and uh, forming the National Covenant. Um, but they had never, never sanctioned um, regicide as the as the sort of outcome to any of this dispute. And, you know, Scots commissioners had spent a lot of time in England. And at one point, you know, Charles had thrown himself onto the Scots, thinking that was really his best chance of survival. And um, there was a sort of long standoff, all seen through the eyes of the French ambassador in Newcastle, where the Scots are keep, you know, keep saying to Charles, you know, we, we, we want to negotiate with you, but you have to sign the National Covenant first, which made various um, undertakings about the integrity of the Scottish Church. And Charles had always refused. I mean, in this way, Charles I is, you know, sort of admirably um, consistent and true to his word. You know, his son just signs it and obviously then has no intention of um, falling. And that actually causes the Scots godly more trouble. What do you do with someone who's, who will swear everything you ask of them and then not do anything about it? Um, but in the end, the Scots just can't negotiate with Charles. He won't sign the covenant. So they basically sell him to the English and the English, you know, they get a lot of money for him and the English take him away from Newcastle. But they always did that on the assumption that no harm would come to the king's person. And obviously the people that they were dealing with were not the sort of people that eventually drove through the regicide. But the Scots are outraged um, within, as soon as the news reaches Edinburgh, which is about six days later, um, they crown his eldest son, who's in exile um, in The Hague. Uh, They crown him Charles II, not just of Scotland, but crucially also of England, Wales, Ireland and 
they were sort of euphemistically out of France, uh, France at the stage as well. But that lays a real challenge. I mean, it becomes very clear from then on that, um, you know, the Stuarts are not going to be happy just to be kind of monarchs of Scotland. So although in the Cromwellian state, Charles II is always referred to as the King of Scots, I mean, you know, he doesn't really care whether whatever the Scots do, um, but he does care if it becomes a security threat and certainly Charles has eventually prevailed on to go to Scotland in 1650. He sees his only reason for being there is raising an army, invades England again. Uh, uh, I mean, England gets invaded a lot from Scotland through the Civil Wars in 1651 and is defeated by Cromwell at the, at the Battle of Worcester. Um, You've mentioned um, just then Scotland invading England several times at this period so we talked about empire but closer to home we have issues uh we are constantly at the throats of the dutch in the latter 1600s as well um is it that people look at us and we look weak and pathetic uh and therefore uh this is the time if you've got a beef with england this is the time to exercise said beef well you know that england doesn't have a standing army and except during the mid-century civil wars um so you know militarily um england relies on musters and on local intelligence and things so um that's it, it, its navy is is, is 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 recognized and feared but it doesn't have an army it also is confession well england if you think about it more and say in the terms of the british isles is also confessionally mixed so you know the, there are always opportunities say for the spanish to you know sort of medal in Ireland as well that's a long long history of that um but yeah I think um there is and also England is often at this stage as well sort of remarkably prosperous England does escape the worst devastations of the 30 years war in 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 Europe um so you know there are riches to be gained as well and really that's very clear in William of Orange's decision to intervene in English politics. I mean, we have every kind of use, you know, euphemism, intervene in English politics. I mean, I think at the moment, airlines are calling cancellation schedule interventions. Well, you know, I think it's very similar. I think, you know, William's intervention in English politics is, a, is actually a, a foreign invasion. And what's really driving him is the opportunity to marshal all of England's political and military and financial resources towards his war against Louis XIV, um, because that will make a huge difference to the balance of power between you know, um, the Dutch and under the French, if he can have all of England's resources. So, yeah, I think England isn't naturally strong and well protected, but it also offers potential foreign powers quite a lot of gains. We've Alex has just jumped over one of my favourite bits of history. So we're going to have to go back, Alex. Come on. You can't, you can't ignore this. It's I just, I've just realised the questions don't mention the restoration because I think it was so... time, but we have time. So I just sent yeah. you a, a DM saying, have at it, because there's no it. way Charlie doesn't want to discuss her man with you. With, with Claire Jackson as well. You know, yeah. We've got, you can't do me out of this. Have so. It. This is what's so fascinating about this particular period and about England as a and Britain as a thing is that we get rid of our crowned head only to bring back his son. So tell us about the the impact that the restoration had. It is remarkable. Um that the same army that ordered Charles the First's execution are the same army that invites that his son back 11 years later um and i think you know again the way in which we the stories that we tell ourselves the fact that we often just use the 
shorthand of the interregnum sort of assumes that it's just some sort of comfortable anomaly uh, or some rather uncomfortable anomaly, but we can be comfortable in terms of knowing that you know, it was just a an unfortunate 11 years before normal service was resumed. Um, of course, it didn't feel like anything like that to contemporaries. Um, and it probably must have seemed like the least likely of outcomes at many junctures. I think it says quite a lot for, so hopefully this will go down well, but I think, you know, I think I am more of a fan of Charles II than other historians have sometimes been, um, in that I think he does play quite a shrewd strategic waiting game through the 1650s. I think it would been quite easy to yield to foreign powers, foreign Catholic powers, who were quite keen to offer him the arms and forces he needed to reclaim his throne. And he knew that you know, being restored by a foreign Catholic power was not going to work in the long run. I think he's also quite shrewd, too, in being able to maintain enough royalist momentum at a time when even to be a royalist was really a capital crime in the 1650s, but not jumping every time the sealed knot attempted some kind of insurrection, knowing that probably that wasn't really going to be strong enough and he'd probably just walk straight into arrest and uh, execution. So, you know, just, I mean, you could just say, well, he's just naturally indolent. Um, so, you know, actually it's just more of a case of him not doing anything and waiting to be invited. But I think that's a bit harsh. I think when he is restored, um, I think the fact that he's lived in very different royal circumstances for 11 years, both um, in different royal courts, but also sometimes pretty humbly gives him an insight into his country. I mean, the fact that he spent 40, 43 nights on the run after the Battle of Worcester kind of hiding from, uh, you know, sort of living among his own subjects and hiding from his own subjects is, is a sort of sort of Robin Hood-esque moment. Um, but it also brings him contacts and influence and, um you know, again, a sort of cosmopolitanism that then makes him probably deservedly not very well trusted by the English political establishment. I mean, he is quite jaw dropping in his capacity to you know, negotiate secret subsidies with the French crown while at the same time outwardly um you know, lobbying for funds to fight the French in Parliament. Um, but he's, you know, he's he's a he's a sort of master strategist, really, and he does seem able to keep many balls in the air. Um so his main failure, and I think he would probably see it in these terms too, is an ability to produce a legitimate heir. I don't think the uh, the fertility problem lies with him. Um, and you know, he produces at least sort of fourteen children. And uh, but I think in a way, again, his refusal to bow to popular pressure and divorce Queen Catherine and legitimise one of his um, illegitimate children also speaks to his recognition of the limits of kingship as well. I mean, I, you know, I think he he does take very seriously the idea that having been excluded from the throne for 11 years, the throne is not something for, that you know is his to sort of just reallocate to somebody else. So I think he is a really interesting mix of, you know, arch pragmatism sometimes and cynicism and, you know, his willing willingness to lend out the Royal robes and regalia to be used in, you know, uh, West end theater performances, you know, speaks to a kind of cynicism and um, sort of superficiality. But I think at the same time, he has certain red, red lines that he doesn't cross and God may be moving in mysterious ways in that he seems to be likely to be succeeded by his younger Catholic brother. But I also think, you know, he recognises that this is a bit beyond uh, any anything that is in his power to stop. Something that Henry VIII would have been humble yeah. uh, and to accept. Uh, this is a heinous question to ask a, a serious historian uh, and a sensible historian, but we are renowned for being insensible on History Hack. Team Cromwell or Team Stuart? Oh, definitely Team Stuart. Yeah, no, you've just made Charlie's day. I think it was, 
brilliant. <laughs> I mean, just even on the clothes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were fitter, let's be honest. But um, what I find really interesting about, about Charles and his, his sort of healing and settling attitude is that he does work with some pretty pretty big parliamentarians like the um, the Earl of Manchester. Who... And I think that's what I mean about a sort of arch pragmatist and shrewd, shrewdness. I, uh, you know, I, th- I think he, he he thinks he knows that he's only going to stay on the on the throne for as long as his subjects want him to be there. I mean, he's seen this pretty vividly um, in his father's fate. And there is little point deliberately setting out to alienate um, a faction that's pretty powerful. Um, I mean, probably the ones who feel more have more reason to feel um, disgruntled, uh, sort of those who've suffered huge losses for the royalists through the 1640s and then, you know, sort of see these former parliamentarians now sort of gaining high office. But I think this is Charles's sort of sense. Well, this is this is the, the messiness of politics. The, the act of indemnity and oblivion. Yeah, is often, you know, sort of jokes as sort of bringing um, indemnity for his former enemies and oblivion for his former friends. Yeah. <laughs> you choose to end the book uh, with 1688. Uh, you've drawn, so you've drawn your own box, if you like, um, and you've called this the, the point of ending it there. You've called it a new Magna Carta. Can you explain this for listeners who aren't familiar with what happens in that year? Yeah, and it's not actually 1688. That chapter is um, about 1687 and 1688. So it's about the sort of very different visions for England of James the seventh of Scotland, who, who succeeded Charles II as James the um, second of England. So James the seventh and second and his Dutch nephew and Dutch son-in-law, same person, William of Orange. And much of it result, revolves around sort of ideas of religious toleration. So James is a Catholic convert um, whose first marriage to an Anglican had produced Mary and Anne. It's Mary, uh, there's staunch Protestants. Mary is married to another staunch Protestant, sort of William of Orange. James then converts to Catholicism. And um, this, is, you know, this, is, this is a problem for the English. Um, and there's sort of great political instability in the late 1670s through what we call the exclusion crisis, where um, significant members of what then became sort of Whig opposition tried and um, preclude James from succeeding to the throne on account of his Roman Catholicism. Again, as I say, Charles doesn't go along with this. I mean, absolutely recognises James's right to succeed him in the absence of a legitimate heir. Um, and James initially offers reassurances, both during the exclusion crisis and after he succeeds uh, Charles in 1685, saying, you know, my, my Catholicism is a private matter. I will always uphold the Church of England. But then he doesn't do that. He very quickly sets about a grand sort of re-Catholicization project. He sort of treats Ireland as a bit of a laboratory and obviously in Ireland there's a majority Catholic population to work with. But in England, he assumes, I think, that there are just more potential Catholics than seem to seems to be the case that people are only protestant because they know that they would be subject to penal laws so therefore if you were simply to lift all those penal laws there would be sort of mass conversions and england would be re-catholicized it's a slightly odd view of the world but um you know in in trying to promote a um an agenda of religious toleration uh, he calls this a new magna carta this is his new vision for england and it is fiercely resisted um i mean ironically it's fiercely resisted in scotland where it would have benefited the Presbyterian majority that find themselves um, subject to, um, you know, the sort of enforcement of religious conformity to a, an Episcopalian, a bishop-governed church that they don't they don't um, adhere to. But 
the Scots Presbyterians say if the price of religious toleration is toleration to Catholics, we are not having it. Um, so there's that kind of James's promise of a new Magna Carta, and um, which is then sort of intersects with the dynastic prospect of a never-ending Catholic dynasty, because in June 1688, James's Italian Catholic second wife, Mary of Medina, produces a son. So it's no longer going to be the case if this son survives that the English just have to endure a Catholic king for several years and then hopefully he will die quite quickly and he'll be succeeded by his Protestant daughters, Mary and then Anne. Uh, the arrival of this new prince in June 1688 suddenly changes the scales completely and that's what leads to the uh, famous invitation to William to intervene in domestic politics and bring a large navy with him and potentially some large pitched battle to take place between him and his Catholic father-in-law and uncle. And no one wanted a regency. And nobody wanted particularly a regency. Um, no, and I mean, in the end, James actually does live until 1701. So it would have been quite a long, um, quite a long Catholic reign anyway, by which, and also James has huge um, you know, spiritual, but also military and financial and political backing from the French court. So even if it might have seemed unlikely that a Catholic regime at court could gain support, I think, you know, as especially with the, French revocation of the Edict of Nantes and sort of great waves of French Protestant um, refugees fleeing into London, telling these awful tales about forced conversions and brutality and violence. Um, you know, what, what, what English Protestants are terrified of is that uh, if James's Catholicizing agenda gains ground, that it would then be backed by Catholic force. And it's not really toleration. It's a means to securing the re-Catholicization of England in the long term. Talk about bookending a book. You start with a with the threat of a Catholic invasion from a foreign power, to then being so scared of Catholicism from within that we invite a foreign power, a Protestant foreign power, to invade. And it's it's famously referred as being sort of glorious and bloodless. Was it anything? Well, it certainly wasn't bloodless in, in, in Ireland. And it was certainly also not really very bloodless in Scotland. Um, no, I mean, we, <clears throat> it certainly wouldn't have been bloodless had um, things worked out the way that people were sort of expecting in that, you know, there was an anticipation that James, who was, you know, had numerically larger forces. I mean, James had maintained a standing army. Um, and there was sort of anticipation that he and William would fight one another on Salisbury Plain. Uh, James then had one of his sort of psychosomatic nosebleeds and kind of retreated to London. And basically, in the end, that war is exported to the Battle of the Boyne. So where, you know, Ireland famously doesn't have any English monarchs set foot there for, for many hundreds of years and then finds two kings, sort of James um, with lots of Jacobites being the Latin for James supporters, but also William with all of his sort of international coalition of troops. Um, and you know, the Battle of the Boyne is today etched into sort of Irish national consciousness. So it's certainly not a, a, a bloodless outcome. What motivates though a lot of English willingness even though there are Dutch troops on the streets of London in the Christmas of 1688 and English soldiers aren't allowed to approach London you know it is it is being you know, controlled by foreign troops which I think we've kind of airbrushed out about the way we tell our glorious revolution I think what is what, what makes most English people very um, prepared to accept William's rule is, is both the fact that he's married to James's Protestant daughter Mary so you know it's not an entire um, hostile takeover or, or, or usurpation, but also that you know, people simply want to avoid the effusion of blood. You know, they remember what happens when, you know, the middle ground doesn't hold firm in this sort of instability. You know, they remember that, you know, that England you know, could 
could descend again into civil war. And you know, the, the, the forces against that are so strong that, you know, it's why some people have called sort of 1688 the sensible revolution or something. <laughs> but uh, I think it's very much only in the 18th century that it acquires this epithet glory. Gosh, well, I, I think I could talk to you all day, Claire, about uh, being a being a restoration historian about the nefarious Dutch um, and thoroughly enjoy myself. But we are going to have to wrap up here with just a huge congratulations. Oh, thank win. you very much. I could talk um, all day about this. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to carry on. We're going to wrap up the episode. We'll just keep talking. Um, thank you so much, Claire Jackson, for joining us. Devil Land is available where all good books are sold and you can buy it via our bookstore. So please go and get yourself a copy. Thank you so much for joining us, Claire. Thank you very much for having me. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.